Hello, I'd like to thank you for listening to the Journeying Through the Scriptures podcast. Today we continue our journey through the book of Mark. Mark chapter 2 begins with a story, a a very well-known story, a very well-told story about a paralytic that comes to Jesus. Now, remember, on the hills of chapter 1, we talked about Jesus came to teach, and we see at the end of chapter 1, Jesus teaching in in multiple places, and big crowds following him. So we find him in chapter 2, and when he returned to Capernaum, again, that's kind of his home base of operations, that it was reported he was home and many were gathered together so that there was actually no more room at the door and he was teaching the word to them. So we find Jesus with a big crowd gathered around him, so much so you can't even get in the door and he's there and he's, he's teaching. And it says that they came, who's they? We're about to find out it's going to be these friends and they, they bring to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him, again, because of the crowd, they removed the roof. So they actually get on the roof, and they begin digging through the roof. Now, in modern times, that seems a little crazy. But actually, if you think about it, most houses in the first century would have been one story, and you would have had a uh, thing of stairs on the outside that would lead up to the roof, because that's often where the family would have like a little garden where they grow herbs, and, and they would sleep on the top floor, and, and I know I said one story because it would be kind of like a loft, and you would sleep on the loft. Your animals and stuff would actually be where Jesus would be teaching uh, in the main area, but they, you know, it would have been a thatched roof. And so they climb up, and they begin pulling apart this thatched roof as, roof as Jesus is teaching. And Jesus looks up at them, and in verse 5, it, it always shocks me, and it kind of makes me stop and think and it really should get our attention because it mark includes this little detail and and when jesus saw their faith he said to the paralytic your sins are forgiven it's not that jesus saw the faith of the paralytic it is that he saw the faith of the friends who would climb up because they couldn't get to him they didn't give up they carried him up the stairs they dug through the roof and they lowered him down which means they had a rope they had a plan and they were very serious about getting him to jesus And he sees their faith. And I like this definition of faith. Faith is a removal of any obstacle to get to Jesus. I want you to think about that for a second because that's such a more uh, colorful definition of faith than I think we're used to. We're very used to the very dry academic definition of faith. But faith is the removal of any obstacle to get to Jesus. And for these friends, they knew Jesus was kind of like the leper in in chapter 1 who said, I know you can heal me. Would you heal me? They go, Jesus can heal him. We just got to get our friend to Jesus. And they climb up on the the roof and they dig through it. They remove that obstacle to get their friend to Jesus. That is faith. Faith is, I will remove any obstacle to get to Jesus. And Jesus sees their faith, and he tells the, the, the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, which sounds odd to us. We would hear that, and we would think, what is Jesus saying there? I mean, the guy clearly has a, another problem. He can't walk. Would he not heal him for that first? And then, after healing the you know the problem of being paralyzed, would he then not maybe talk to him about his sin? But he starts out with, your sins are forgiven. Well, in the first century, if you were 
I mean, we don't know if he was born a paralytic. We don't know much about him other than he is, in fact, paralytic. But if you had an affliction, if you were born blind, if you had leprosy, if you were born a paralytic or became paralyzed later, you couldn't walk, you couldn't talk, what, whatever the ailment, if it was an ailment like that that was debilitating, more than just I have a fever, in that time, it was often thought you were something you did, you sinned, and God brought this on you, or your parents sinned and brought this on you. So Jesus kind of challenges that, and he looks at the, the young man, and he says, you're paralyzed. Everybody's thinking it's because of his sin or his parents' sin, and he says, your sins are forgiven. He also know, knows that the scribes and the, the scribes are there, and they would have a problem with this, because we see very clearly in verse 6, he says, now some of the scribes were sitting there and questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, that's a good statement. Only God alone can forgive sins. But the fact that Jesus forgave this man's sin is a claim that he is God because he does not challenge the fact that God alone can forgive sins. He does not say, no, actually, I'm teaching that everybody can forgive sins. He's not saying that. In fact, what he's saying is that I'm God, therefore I can forgive sins and so this is what he says and immediately jesus perceiving in his spirit now again this is something else as we learn about the, as we answer the question that mark asks who is jesus and again mark begins to tell us uh, we see that jesus is someone who sees faith we see that someone uh, jesus is someone we got to get to with with our faith we got to remove every obstacle that's faith get to jesus because he's the one that can help he's the one that can heal he's the one that can forgive but we also see that Jesus is one who can read hearts. He sees through our facade. He sees through whatever face we're putting on, and he can see the heart of the problem. He perceives in his heart that they are questioning themselves. And he actually says, why do you question, the, question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or take up your, your bed and walk? Now, if I were there, I mean, personally, I, I would feel like my thought would be like, well, how did he know that that's what they were thinking in their hearts? That, that to me, is amazing, that Jesus can read the heart. And he does this in other, other points in the scriptures. And, and we need to stop and say, who is Jesus? He's one that he knows our heart. And I think that's good news and bad news for us. It's good news that Jesus knows our heart. He can read our heart. He knows when we're hurting. He knows what we need. We, we don't need to try to, you know, in fact, you can't manipulate God through your prayers. But if you if you have a hurt and you're you're just you can cry out to God. I think the Psalms are, are beautiful for that. Psalms of lament, people crying out to God. Well, God hears our hearts. Jesus sees our hearts. It's also scary because you can't hide anything. If you have sin in your heart, if you have hatred in your heart, if you have anger or bitterness in your heart, he can see that. He can perceive that. But it's it's amazing. He perceives in what they're thinking in their hearts and he questions them on it and he says what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk and this is what's amazing he says uh, but that you may know the son of man has authority there's that that theme of authority again on earth to forgive sins he tells the paralytic i say to you get up and walk and go home and the guy does immediately picks up his bed and he goes out so that they are all amazed. That's another theme. You're going to see they're amazed. They're amazed at his teaching. They're amazed at the demon-possessed man being cast out. They're amazed at the leper being healed. They're amazed that he heals this paralytic. They're going to be amazed in chapter 4 
that he calms the storm. They're going to be amazed in chapter 5 that Jesus kind of tames the demonic man. And here they're amazed and they, they go away glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Chapter 1, we've never heard anything like this, his teaching. Now they haven't seen anything like this. They haven't seen a person that could come and teach with authority, heal people, heal a, a paralytic, and not only that, forgive his sins, and then question the scribes on questioning that in their hearts. Je Jesus is the one the object of our faith because he's the one that has the power and the authority to forgive sins. He's authority over the spiritual realm. He's authority over sin. He has authority over the physical well-being of our lives as well. And you see here he heals both. He heals the man's heart, but he also heals his legs. He gets up and it causes people to be amazed and glorify God. And anytime we go to Christ, anytime we, we go in faith to Jesus, we go to him for the forgiveness of sins. We go to him with our hurts, with our needs, with our wants. We, we should come away always being amazed and glorifying God, even if he doesn't answer the prayer the way we want, because he doesn't always do that, because it's not about us. But that it should, it should spark within us a, a sense of, of awe and wonder that our sins are forgiven. We should never get over that or get past that. And kind of on that theme of forgiving sins, Jesus goes out to the sea. A crowd is following him. He's teaching them. There's all those themes at play. And he passes by Levi, who we kind of know as Matthew, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus, a tax collector, which, by the way, in that time period was often lower in social status than prostitutes. They did not like tax collectors. They were often considered thieves. They worked for Rome. They would take extra taxes, give some to Rome, keep some for themselves. We see that with the story of Zacchaeus. We'll see that later in Mark, the, that he was cheating people. That wasn't uncommon for tax collectors at the time. They were not well-liked in, uh, in, in Israeli society at that time. They, they, did not, they did not like them. So Jesus stops, and he looks at this tax collector at work in his tax, tax booth, and he says to him, follow me. And just like the fishermen who left everything, they left their nets, he leaves his tax booth and immediately follows him. Again, same thing. Your job in that time period was your identity. If you were a fisherman, that's who you were. If you were a tax collector, that's who you were. That's who you spent time with. That was your guild for you to leave that. You don't really just come back to work the next day. You don't really just go, hey, guys, I'm going to take a two-year, three-year sabbatical. I'll be back. You lose everything. You lose your job at that point, and you lose your well-being. And yet we see that Matthew is willing to do that, and he does. He leaves everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus goes to his house, and here's and here starts and sets up the, the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3. We're going to see this theme of Jesus versus the Pharisees. There's this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, and it's going to begin with who Jesus hangs out with. So we find Jesus. He, uh, he calls Matthew. Matthew follows. And Jesus goes to his house. And they recline at the table. And there's many tax collectors there. And there's many sinners there. And they were and they were reclining with Jesus. They were there at the party with Jesus, eating. And his disciples were there with him. So it's Jesus, the guys he's called so far. And they're all there. And the scribes and the Pharisees. And they, they kind of look into this party. And when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, who must be... So they were obviously at least in the area, they see it, they go to his disciples and say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, 
is what's kind of cool. When, when Jesus hears this, he says to them, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick, I came to call the right. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so Jesus again re reaffirms why he's there. He's here to preach the kingdom of God to the people who are far from God. Which, by the way, would have been the scribes and Pharisees. They, at this point in the story, they're they're not the the righteous ones. They're they're not the ones that don't need a physician. They need a physician. We all need a physician. That's Jesus isn't saying some people don't, but what he's saying is. Of course I'm with sinners. First of all, he couldn't go anywhere on this planet that he wouldn't be with sinners because, let's face it, like we're all sinners. Uh, they're all sinners. But, but, but again, don't, don't miss what he's saying. He says, I, I came to, to be with sinners that I might heal them. Jesus came to heal the sick spiritually. And he still does it today. Jesus came to heal the spiritually sick. We're all spiritually sick. We all need Jesus. And, and thank God Jesus came for everybody. He didn't come for the, the perfect and the well put together. He came for the messy and the sloppy and the hurt and the broken. And that should inspire all of us because none of us are perfect, well put together people. We all desperately need Jesus and we're all sinners. Thank God he came to, to heal the sinners, the great physician to heal our sinful hearts. Praise God for that. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're not done. So here we go again. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting as part of their religious ceremonies. And people came to Jesus and they said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. So this actually isn't a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees here particularly, but they're, they're kind of questioning him on, These guys fast. What's wrong with you? And Jesus says, uh, can a wedding guest, no, he kind of takes it in a weird way, so I just want to point this out. Can a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come where the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. So he's not, not saying that we shouldn't fast. I think if, if you read it that way, you haven't read Scripture proper, properly. Uh, Jesus says, at this moment, like, this is like the wedding. I'm the bridegroom. Why would you fast? I'm not gone. But then he kind of, this is an early prediction of his, his death. In fact, he's going to leave. He's not there to stay forever. He says, but but the bridegroom will be taken away, and they will fast on that day. He, he's saying, eventually I'm, I'm going to go, but they'll fast on that day. But don't also miss this. For the fact for him to relate to relate himself to the bridegroom, this kind of wedding uh, imagery, this is kind of an indirect way of saying, I'm God. They, they don't need to fast and pray. They don't need to fast right now because I'm here with them. But when I go, they'll need to fast and, and seek me that way. And so this is a very indirect claim. Now, he continues in, in 21 he's, with some, some interesting uh, parables. He says, now no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away when it, when it shrinks, uh, the new from the old. The wor a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine on, into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And what the way I interpret what he's saying is going, you can't add me to an old religious system. I'm making everything new. It all has to be made new. In your life, you cannot add Jesus to your religious ceremony. 
He must be everything. He must. It must be new wineskins for the new wine. Jesus is the new wine. Your life must become a new wineskin. You can't add him to your old belief system, your old practices. You can't syncretize it and throw it in and go, we'll put it on the shelf and I'll pull Jesus out when I need him. Yeah, he's everything. He must. He remakes everything new. And I think that's what he's saying. He goes, you see, your, your practices of fasting are, are held in the past. When you do fast in the future, it will be new because it will be like a new wineskin because it's going to be something totally different. And he'll talk more about that later. Uh, but we continue now. We start part one of a two-part Sabbath showdown. And this is where we'll end our show today in this story. And he'll, we'll continue it next week as another Sabbath showdown happens. But uh, so one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and he, then as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, "Look, what, what are they? Well, they're doing something that's unlawful on the Sabbath." And he said to them, "Have you have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry, and he rose, and he and those who were with him." Uh, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful, but for the, only the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Now, several things are happening there. One, on the Sabbath, they're going through and they're picking the grain. By the way, if you go back to Leviticus, and I, I don't have the reference readily available to me, but I'll try to find it and link it in the description of the podcast there's a passage that talks about when you when you get your grain fields ready, leave the corners so the poor may come through and they may pick the, the grain. So Jesus picking the grain in itself is not unlawful. And, and again, the, a lot of the Sabbath laws, I, I can't remember, there's like over 600 Sabbath laws and, and like how many steps you can take before you're considered working. Uh, I mean, it's silly. But and Jesus kind of locks in and keys on that, and he, and he says, look, it's have you not read? He takes them back to the scriptures. He's going, look, you're, you're throwing a bunch of, is it, is it un, it's unlawful for me to do this because it's considered work. Nowhere in God's law does it say you can't pick grain on the Sabbath. And so he, he's gonna, he really challenges them on that and says, you're not going to find it. And then he takes the scribes who are the people who spent their lives studying the scriptures, and he says, have you not read? David went into the temple to the bread of the presence, and he ate the bread that wasn't lawful, and he gave it to those who were with him. And so here's their response. And they, well, actually, they don't even respond. And he says to them, the Sabbath was made not, was it was made for man, not for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And this is a bold claim because we, we find out Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath was made for man. So that kind of asks the question, uh, in, in the last few minutes I'll try to briefly walk through this. What is the Sabbath? The Sabbath was, the Sabbath was a day of rest. It was instituted at the end of the, the creation story where God rested. God didn't need rest, right? I mean, he wasn't tired from his, his creating. But what God did is he rested to kind of model, one, that we need rest, and two, that we are to rest in him. And the Sabbath was supposed to bring us into a time where we rest in the work of God and not in our own work. And, and to, to rest in him, to enjoy God, to kind of understand what it is to be in the Sabbath with God. And he says it was made for man, that man might rest in God. 
not man for the Sabbath. Man, man wasn't made to work around the Sabbath and to the Sabbath becomes this kind of almost idol. He goes, no, 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 it was made for us to rest in God. But he says this, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. I, I think what Jesus is saying here is very clearly, he's saying, you're to rest in me. That is what the Sabbath is actually about. The Sabbath was longing for, looking for a day where you would be able to rest in me. And for us, our Sabbath is that we might rest in Jesus. And so today, I, I hope you can find a true Sabbath rest in Christ, that we don't have to work for our salvation. In fact, you can't. But we can rest in Him. And He will, and He does have the power and the authority to forgive our sins. I want to thank you for listening to Journeying Through the Scripture podcast. As we continue our journey through Mark, we'll continue with Mark chapter 3 next time. And until then, continue reading through the scriptures and meditating on God's word.